1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. In a message I'm entitling Overseers in the Church of Christ, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul writing to Timothy says, This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. It's a popular saying that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. It sounds almost cliche to say that, but once we go through this particular passage of Scripture and we begin to consider the qualifications of what it means to be a ruling elder or a leader in the church, I'm hoping that you're going to come to the same conclusion that I did, and that is who then can serve in this capacity. In Paul's instructions to Timothy, he covers the topics of false teachers and sound doctrine and spiritual warfare and public worship and prayer and the place of women in the church. But now Paul is going to set forth the qualifications of those who occupy what I call the ruling elder, what this text calls episkopos or the bishop, but quite literally, it means overseer. We begin with the office of the bishop or the elder in verse 1. It says, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. Apparently, even at this early stage in Christianity, there was a statement or a saying that was going around the early church, and that is, Hey, do you want to love and serve the Lord? Do you want to shepherd the people of God? Then what you desire is a good thing. Not, not everyone will desire the office. Not everyone will say, you know what, whatever ministry is and whatever that looks like, that's not for me. The lifestyle of the ruling elder or the overseer or the pastor requires living a blameless and a pure life. And there are, quite frankly, a lot of people who don't want to live a blameless and a pure life. Because it's going to require effort. An effort that some are unwilling to make. And for the person who loves the Lord Jesus and has no desire to be a minister, they have no desire to be a pastor, they should still with their whole heart desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. 
And so don't just simply take the knob that is inside of your heart and turn the dial all the way down to zero thinking, this has absolutely nothing to do with me. Because I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps it has far more to do with you than you might think. We all desire something. We all desire something. The word desire, by the way, means a strong passion. The leader of the church must be qualified to teach and lead and serve as an example to the congregation. And in order to do that, in order to teach and lead and serve, it's going to require something more than just an inclination to say, well, you know, I can't be a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. I, you know, I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer. I might as well be a pastor. That's not really how it works at all. And oddly enough, there are two different Greek words in this opening verse that are translated desire. I'm going to reread the verse in verse 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop. That first word that's translated desire means to reach out or to stretch in order to obtain. I have tiny little grandchildren who are toddlers. And when they want to reach something, when my little baby Peyton wants to get up on the ledge, she'll get up on her tippy toes. She will, she will with all of her might exert all of her effort to try and climb up on the couch or on the chair. She's reaching, reaching, reaching. And that's what this word really talks about. It's, it's reaching, stretching for the purpose of obtaining. It's describing an external action, not an internal motivation. It's that thing which you do physically in order to stretch, to obtain something that may or may not be desirable. The second is the word that describes a strong passion, an internal passion. And so when he says, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he, second word, different Greek word, desires a good work. This is something that is internal. This is something that means a passion that wells up inside of your heart. And so, again... When both of these words are taken together, it describes in part a man who belongs in the ministry, who pursues it outwardly because he's driven by an inward motivation. Paul's already told us that he himself is called by the Lord Jesus Christ to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul told Timothy that God has entrusted Paul with the ministry in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And that he has empowered Timothy for the ministry in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Not all who desire the office will obtain the office. Not everyone who wants to be the ruling elder or the pastor will meet the character qualifications. It was D.L. Moody who's credited with saying... Character is what you are in the dark. 
character is what you are when nobody else is looking, when no one else has access to you. Harry Hancock said, out of our belief are born deeds, and out of our deeds are born habits, and out of our habits grow our character, and on our character we build our destiny. And so Paul writes that those who desire the office of the bishop desire a good work. Don't ignore that statement because it is work. So many people say to me, you have the best job ever. You only have to work on Sundays in the morning. How cool is that? And I smile and I go, you're right. Yeah, how cool is that? It is work. And for the person who doesn't want to work, then they're probably not called to the ministry. There are two broad terms to describe leaders in the, in the New Testament. The first is presbyteros. It, it, it's translated presbytery in chapter 4, verse 4. If you just turn to the next chapter in 1 Timothy, it says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. That can't be right, because that's not what the passage that I'm looking for. Basically, presbuteros is a word that's translated presbytery. And it actually means leader. And in the Jewish culture, it just meant someone who was mature or older. So presbuteros is a word that's translated elder, if you will. And again, the word that he's using here is a different word. It's episkopos. And some of you know that word because you're familiar with the word episcopalian. But episkopos simply meant an overseer. And so in the New Testament, when we're looking at the word episkopos, there's several different words. There's the word bishop. There's the word pastor. There's the word elder. And all of them are used interchangeably. But it meant a term of spiritual maturity or someone who provides oversight in the ministry. Warren Wiersbe says that the makeup of the early church is described in Philippians chapter 1 verse 1 as saints and bishops and deacons. And it was common for a church to have more than one elder and more than one pastor. And so the position of the bishop literally was the person who oversees. In the popular culture of the first century, it literally didn't mean a guy who had a funny hat and wore robes and had a ring and he had a palace and everybody had to bow down to him. That is not what the word meant. It was just simply the word that was used to describe in the Greek culture a caretaker, a steward. Some of you know what a caretaker is. 
Imagine you're entrusted with taking care of a house or you're a caregiver to a person. That's what that meant. And we sometimes differentiate in our culture and society between service and leadership. But in the world of biblical leadership, the two are married and inseparable. And so in that culture and in that society, leadership meant service and service meant leadership and leadership meant service and service meant leadership. We seek service in the church because we love Jesus and we love each other. And so service in the church, according to the New Testament, is motivated by your love for Jesus and then your love for each other. So in the New Testament, the bishop slash overseer slash elder slash pastor were tasked with the responsibility to serve. To lead. You know the New Testament passage where Jesus says, He who would be great among you, let him be the ser- servant of all to preach and to teach. In chapter 5, verse 17, Paul, Paul writes, Let the elders, in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and in sound doctrine. So the elder serves leads, preaches, teaches. But he also is supposed to care deeply for the spiritually weak and the needy. If you actually, if you're in 1 Timothy, if you just go a couple of books over, all the T's in the New Testament are together, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. If you go to 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 5, Verses 12 through 14, Paul, again writing to the Thessalonians, says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. And so, again, in 1 Thessalonians, it gives us... a an insight into what the pastor was supposed to do. They're to care deeply and spiritually for the people who need help and also they're to care for the church. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 and and they're to care for other leaders in in chapter 4 verse 14 where where Paul later on in the chapter says in in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 um, verse 14 do not Neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. The idea being that the ruling elder, the, the, the pastor, is the person who's responsible for, for doing those things. And so, again, the ruling elder leads, preaches, teaches, cares deeply for the weak, cares for the church, and ordains other leaders. And then in verse 2, it says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Now I want you to pause for just a moment and remember where we've come from in the text. Remember earlier, Paul has already told us about the role of women. Ladies are supposed to exercise 
modesty, purity, there to model industry, humility. And so since Paul says, ladies, all ladies, exercise modesty, purity, industry, humility. Now Paul uses an emphatic expression. A bishop, read it for yourself, must. That's called an emphatic participle. When you have an emphatic participle in a text, it means absolute necessity. And so again, a bishop then must be absolute necessity, blameless. Now, again, what in the world does Paul mean by that? And again, it seems in the context, it means in part not to be held in a criminal sense. The word itself means to hold a person down. It, it, it idiomatically, in that culture, in society, meant to chase somebody down and then put cuffs on them and restrain them. So it came to mean that there was no valid accusation that could be made against them concerning wrongdoing. It can't mean never having gone to jail because if that were the case, then Jesus would be disqualified and Peter, James, and John would be disqualified and Paul would be disqualified and Martin Luther would be disqualified and Martin Luther King Jr. would be disqualified. Going to prison isn't the thing that disqualifies the person from being the pastor of the church. The idea seems to be going to prison for all of the wrong reasons. So the meaning of blameless means no valid accusation of wrongdoing. The character qualifications fall into two broad categories. I'm really reluctant to use the terms positive and negative because it sounds a lot like electricity. I need a word that's way more descriptive that goes beyond just simply true and false. So I'm gonna use the term, there's two broad characteristics that are supposed to mark the life of the ruling elder or the pastor or the leader or the teacher of the congregation. And it seems to include these two terms. I'm gonna use the term desirable and undesirable. Oswald Sanders said that Christian leadership is a blending of natural abilities and spiritual qualities. And so he says the ruling elders or the leaders must be above reproach. One wife, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a heavy drinker, not violent, not greedy, not a new believer. And so when we back up just for a moment and then we look at the word blameless, it doesn't mean sinless, thank God. Or else what I would have to do is just publicly give, offer my resignation right now. But every other responsible pastor in every church in every place would also have to resign. Blameless doesn't mean sinless. What does it mean? It means without reproach. 
Now, in our culture and society, without reproach is a word that is completely lost to the vast majority of people in our world, in our culture. If you went to Park Meadows Mall or you went to the, some place here in the front range and you did a, did a survey among a, a group of people and you said, excuse me, can you tell me what the word without reproach means? The chances are the vast majority of people are not going to be able to understand what it means. But what it quite literally means is, like I said, cannot be laid hold of. In what sense? In the sense that there's nothing in that person's life that the enemy can lay hold of to hinder the work of the gospel or the ministry. This is the kind of word that was used to describe Joseph in his commitment to integrity as he works in Potiphar's house. And even as a prisoner in Pharaoh's prison, he is without reproach. When the people in Babylon were trying to find a reason to accuse Daniel of some misguided giving of some thing that had to possibly go wrong. They conducted an extensive background check. They followed him. They evaluated him. They found, they, they overturned every nook and cranny of his life, but they could find no reason to accuse him. And so the idea seems to be that there's nothing in that person's life that the enemy can take hold of in order to hinder the work of the gospel or hinder the work of the ministry or hinder the witness of the Lord. So the overseer must be blameless in his personal life, but also in his public life. There can be no sustainable charge of serious sin and the person should have a deserved reputation for honesty and integrity. And so, again, when pastors make the news because they've run off with the secretary or, or because they've embezzled the money or because they've done some horrible and terrible thing and for whatever reason they determine themselves still fit to serve, then that seems to mean that there's some real problem. And so, Paul says, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And as you can imagine, just like the earlier passage, this has caused no end of controversy. Well, Paul, what do you mean, the husband of one wife? Are you telling me that same-sex couples can't be the ruling elder? I got to tell you something. In the whole history of the church, same-sex couples were never ruling elders, ever, until now, in some denominations. When it says the husband of one wife, does this mean that polygamists were prohibited from occupying the office of the ruling elder? And there does seem to be some evidence that that is in fact the case. And so people might wonder, well, what do you do if you go to Africa and there's a tribal chieftain and he's married to four different women? Are you saying that he has to divorce three of those women and, and throw them away and keep the one that he has? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible isn't saying that when you're dealing with a polygamous culture that you abandon responsibility 
responsibilities. That's not what it's saying. But it is saying that you can't occupy the office of the ruling elder. So you can imagine when Islam gains dominance in the 6th and 7th century, they have to ignore this particular passage of scripture. And our LDS friends, our Mormon friends, when Joseph Smith shows up and he goes, you know what, back when Paul was speaking to Timothy, that's right, you could only have one wife. But guess what? God's given me a new revelation. I can have more than one wife. I can even have your wife. Isn't God good? See, you laugh at the ridiculousness and the absurdity of such an assertion. Someone should have been able to say, you know what, that that doesn't sound quite right to me. So again, what is Paul exactly saying? Is he saying that single men are ineligible? But we know that Paul, who's writing this particular passage, is single. So do you think he's saying, oh, by the way, I'm disqualified as well? That's probably not the meaning. So in the context I'm going to suggest to you that it implies something way more. It means that the person who occupies the role of the ruling elder or the overseer, according to the original text itself, the the way it translates, it says he has to be a one-woman kind of a guy. So again, does this, some, some denominations have suggested, well, does this mean that if a person has ever been married and then divorced, and then remarried, that the person who's ever been divorced is fundamentally disqualified from being the ruling elder. And some denominations have interpreted it exactly that way. Does it mean that Paul is saying one wife at a time? Whatever else he's saying... He's saying that the ruling elder has to have a high view of marriage. But I'm going to suggest to you that it means something way more than just simply a high view of marriage. It is a person who has a biblical view of marriage. And so not only does this person have to have a biblical view of marriage, but the person also has to, I am going to suggest to you, implicit in the text is a faithfulness to his wife. That makes sense to you, right? It can't just simply mean, okay, he's a one-woman kind of a guy, but if he's unfaithful, well, he's still qualified to be the pastor. I can't see that by any stretch of the imagination, it seems to me that he has a biblical view of marriage and he has a personal commitment to purity and fidelity in his own relationship. So whatever else it means, it has to mean a commitment to the biblical view of marriage, of moral behavior and sexual purity. And the word temperate can also be translated vigilant. Literally, the Greek word says without wine or wineless. But in the context, it's probably not just simply saying no wine. I think it's a metaphor. It means a man who exercises sound judgment that is alert, vigilant, clear-headed, willing to act based on sound judgment. And so in that sense, 
I, I think that that's what it means. A person who is sober, vigilant, a, a person who's able to conduct himself mentally and intellectually with a clear, sound judgment. Because again, I don't think that it means that you can never drink any wine under any circumstance. Because in this very letter, Paul will tell Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. In other words, that he must have had some sort of health issues that required the medicinal use of of wine under certain circumstances. And so whatever else it means, I think it means a person who exercises sound judgment, alert, vigilant, clear-headed, both temperate and sober-minded, combined to leave the reader with a sense of seriousness. And so whoever the ruling elder is, the person has to be discerning. And discreet. But it also seems to imply that he has to take his job seriously. Well, does that mean he can't laugh or tell a few jokes? I think that it's okay for the pastor to laugh or tell a few jokes. Or else, again, I'm going to have to turn in my resignation. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who was approached by a lady after a service one day. And she said, Mrs. Spurgeon, I think that you take way too much levity in the pulpit. It was her her way of saying, I think you're joking way too much in, in the pulpit. And he said, Madam, if you only knew how I restrain myself. And if you guys only knew how much I have to restrain myself. Because every once in a while, I just want to break free from the text and do a full-on stand-up comedy routine for you. And then I have to go, wait a minute. I'm not here to entertain the troops. I'm here to teach the Bible. Back to the text. Good behavior can be translated orderly behavior. It means a well-ordered life. And I want you to think what that means. If the senior pastor or the ruling pastor or the elder or the bishop, it, just, it means good behavior is orderly behavior. Let me just put it in the opposite, maybe to make it a little bit clearer. Not chaotic. Not in constant turmoil. Imagine a pastor or a leader whose life is in a constant state of drama. Turmoil. Difficulty. (laughs) I was talking to a person on my radio program who's a fairly well-known Christian leader who was offered a role on Wife Swap. And he said, N-O spells no. I mean, it's one thing to have to live through the trials and difficulties of a real world in which we live. And it's another thing to, to give people an opportunity to mock Christ and mock Christianity. He said, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars. When it says good behavior or orderly behavior, I think that it means gentleman in the old-fashioned sense of the word. It's a person who conducts himself with dignity, propriety, in the fashion of a gentleman. Hospitable means welcoming. 
Literally, it means a lover of strangers. And so the implication seems to be that the pastor has to be a person who loves people, who loves believers. The Bible says, do good to everyone who's in the household of faith. But also, the idea seems to be a willingness to do good to people who have absolutely nothing to do with Christians and Christianity. So much so that it even seems to extend to the idea of loving people enough to welcome them, believers and unbelievers, into their own home. Apt to teach confirms Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 where the pastor teacher is the one who both pastors the church and teaches the church. So here when it says apt to teach, it means with a predisposition or an inclination to instruct and to impart information. But Paul is going to have way more to say about the centrality of teaching in the life of the ruling elder in chapter 5, verse 17. Again, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, if you look, it says... Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, over and over and over and over again, the central dominating place of the pastor is to occupy the role of teaching. And so the ruling elder or the overseer is tasked with the job of teaching the Bible. But remember, it, it, it isn't just simply teaching the Bible. The pastor teaches the Bible in such a way to discover the will of God, to feed the flock. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, where it says, Pastors, feed the flock, refuting those who bring false teaching and false doctrines in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, 29 through 31. Apt to teach doesn't just simply mean a predisposition to teach. It means that and more. It, and it also means that the teacher doesn't have to be the best teacher in the world. It doesn't say, you know, Gino, you're, you're no Billy Graham. You're no Charles Stanley. You're no fill in the blank. The Bible doesn't say that you have to be the best teacher in the church or even the, the best teacher in your circle. But the pastor should know the central teachings of Christianity. The pastor should know how to divide the word of truth. The, the pastor should know and be ready, willing, and able to defend the truths of essential Christianity. Paul doesn't insist that the ruling elder totally abstain from alcoholic beverages, but he insists on sobriety. And like I said, it appears that Timothy had elected to abstain completely from alcohol 
alcoholic beverages, but Paul urges him to take some wine for his stomach's sake, again, which seems to imply a health issue. And so in that culture and in that society, it wasn't inappropriate, and it was even expected that there would be some social drinking, but guess what? We live in a different world, and we live in a different time, and I've made the personal decision that it's not a good idea for me to drink, ever. And the reason why it's not a good idea for me to drink ever is I grew up in a world with an abusive alcoholic stepfather who, when he wasn't drinking, he was drugging. And when he was drugging, he was drinking. And he would, on regular occasions, abuse his wife, my mother, and her children. I live in a world where I know that more people will die from drunk driving than almost any other cause of death in the United States of America. Many of you know what it's like to grow up in a world of alcohol abuse and all of the pain and heartache and problems that it causes. Some people might say, well, does the Bible forbid me if I drink responsibly? Guess what? There's great freedom in Christ. The Bible makes it abundant. I need to make it abundantly clear as your pastor to not allow what the Bible prohibits or to prohibit what the Bible allows. Does the Bible allow it? Again, you have great freedom in Christ. But because of abuse, a lot of people have made the decision that it's not a good idea for them. And it's not a good idea for me. And so he says, not violent. It translates in the King James Version, the word striker. In the original language, it was a word that meant a person who uses physical violence or physical force to exact compliance. And so the pastor apparently isn't allowed to get you in a headlock and give you noogies in order to give, make sure you give to the church. I'm not supposed to beat people up. I'm not supposed to do that. So pray for me. Paul knows that the wrath of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. That's what James wrote in chapter 1, verse 20. And so the pastor who has to beat people into submission disqualifies himself from the ministry. Does that shock you or surprise you? Should it shock you or surprise you that the ruling elders shouldn't be able to beat people up in the congregation? Yeah, I'm hoping that some of you are going to go, you know, that makes sense. Would you want to go to a church where the pastor beats you up? Or would you rather go to a church where you get to beat up the pastor? Well, guess what? That's this kind of a church. not. <laughs> the Bible says that pastors also have to be the head of their household, exercising discipline. But when discipline becomes heavy-handed punishment, again, his qualifications for ministry have to be called into question. I'm going to tell you a little secret about the early church. In the early church, if you were a pastor in the middle of the first century and the second century, and if for whatever reason you owned slaves before 
the slaves were set free by Diocletian in the middle of the second century. If you were a pastor and you hit your servant, struck him, they would impeach you and then they would, would defrock the pastor. In other words, pastors who were mean or injurious to their slaves, to their wives, to their children. Now, again, why is this an important part? Because, again, if a pastor gives himself permission to beat up his wife or to heavily abuse his children, then that person's disqualified from the ministry. Heavy-handed punishment is not allowed. Discipline is allowed. And then look what it says, not greedy for money. Those who are greedy for money take at least some comfort that this passage isn't found in some ancient manuscripts. There are people on TV who will go, this seems to be their only thing that they know about Greek. And they'll go, you know, that not greedy for money, that's not found in the oldest manuscripts. It's true. It's not found in the oldest manuscripts but it's found in most of the manuscripts. Paul warns about the love of money. He warns about the evil fruit that comes from an unhealthy preoccupation with money. Later, Paul will write in this very same epistle in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. If you just go over just a few pages to chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where it, there, this is not in dispute, it says... But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So some leaders claim that they're not greedy for money. They'll read the passage and they'll go, well, well I'm not greedy. W.H. Griffith Thomas says that making money is necessary for daily living. But money making is apt to degenerate into money loving. And the deceitfulness of riches enters in and spoils our spiritual life. It was John Wesley who said, get all of it you can. Save all of it that you can. Give all of it that you can. J.C. Ryle said, Nothing I am sure has such a tendency to quench the fire of religion as the possession of money. Billy Graham said, There's nothing wrong with people possessing riches. The wrong comes when the riches possess the people. And he's exactly right. I have a wonderful little book um, that's compiled by Rose Publishing and a little pamphlet on money. And I took the liberty because I didn't have time to write out all of this stuff. But on the, on the, in the Rose pamphlet on money, they've got a series of don'ts and do's that I absolutely love. Listen to this. He says, do's and don'ts with money. Don't love it, Luke 16, 13. Don't think it'll last, Jeremiah 17, 11. Don't think you, it'll save you, Psalm 37, 16. Don't serve it. Don't envy others who have it, Exodus 20, 17. Don't hoard it, James chapter 5, verse 3. Don't be foolish with it, Proverbs 17, 16. Don't think it can compensate for turmoil, Proverbs 15, 16. Don't rely on it, Psalm 62, 10. Don't think it can buy God's blessings, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. I'm, and again, 
all of the passages are listed and I'll have it available and I'll post it online. Don't oppress people with it. Don't use it for fraud. Don't steal it. Don't give special honor to those who have it. Don't use it dishonestly. Don't use it for evil. Don't extort it. Don't be greedy for it. Don't worry about it. And then it says for do. Do love the Lord. Do only the things know that the, God, the things of God will last. Do remember that only God can save you. Only God serve the Lord. Do be content with what you have. Do remember that God provides. Do use it wisely. Do fu- use, fu- you find peace in God. Do rely on the Lord. Do find blessings for living for God. Do repay your debts with it. Do work to get it. Do handle it justly. Do give it to those in need. Do be trustworthy with it. Do honor God with it. Do earn it. Not steal it. Do give it intentionally. Do know that God will take care of you. The famous reformer and leader, William Wilberforce, wrote, Prosperity and luxury gradually extinguish sympathy and by inflating with pride, harden and debase the soul. My view, the passage probably belongs in the text. My view, the pastor who loves money invariably will come to a place will they be less likely to love and serve the church? So the elder or ruler also should be gentle in his way in the church, patient, kind, exercising a spirit of humility. The elder must not be contentious or quarrelsome. That means arguing over every little thing. The elder should promote peace. And you can imagine in a congregation there are peace fakers, there are peacemakers and there are peace breakers. So the ruling elder or the overseer must not be covetous, wanting more and more of something that he already has or demands more when you already have enough. So in what sense does Paul mean not covetous? Again, I'm going to suggest to you that the passage seems to tie back to this issue of money. Again, the person preoccupied with money becomes less concerned about the spiritual life, less concerned about the spiritual condition of the church. And so the pastor preoccupied with money is in a constant state of distraction. So imagine you're in a church where all you think about is how are we going to generate enough money to keep the lights on? And how are we going to generate enough money to pay for the Sunday school supplies? And how are we going to do this? And how are we going to do that? And I've learned long ago, where God guides, he provides. And if the giving stops and the lights go off, then it could very well be that that's exactly what has to happen. 
And look what it says in verses 4 and 5. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul makes it clear that a man who can't keep his children under control almost certainly will not be able to handle the rigors of the community life of the church. But let's be clear. This doesn't mean that the pastor's children, again, have to be blameless or sinless. Can you imagine if you're the pastor's child, like my poor children growing up in this church, and, and, and you know, Jonathan's four years old. What do you mean you haven't led every four-year-old in your, in your Sunday school class to the Lord? Is it possible that the pastor's kids are going to be kids? Are they going to do kid-like things? Are they going to make kid-like decisions? Children will be children, but again, whatever else it means, it must mean that the children, listen carefully, respect their parents and they respect the church. And so if you're the pastor of a, of, of a church and your children don't respect you, and they don't respect the church. Again, I'm not saying that every single rebellious child is somehow that way because of the irresponsibility of their parents. But we can't ignore the parenthesis. Look what it says. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the children? or take care of the church of God. And I want to draw your attention to that tiny little expression that you might be just reluctant to look at because I find this so fascinating. It's the expression, take care of the church. The, the text doesn't say rule the church, reign over the church, lord it over the church. It says that the ruling pastors or the ruling elders have to take care. The overseer is, isn't the lord of his little kingdom or of his, of his little church or big church. The ruling elder is the overseer, the shepherd, the servant, the steward who guides and guards the sheep. And by the way, the only other time that expression, that little tiny Greek expression occurs in the New Testament is in the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verse 34, you know the story how a man falls among thieves and Jesus is basically telling, um, he, he's been asked the question about the law and what's the greatest law. And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you remember a, a, a clever uh, lawyer said, and who's my neighbor? And he gives this story of a, of, of a Samaritan who's making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. He falls among thieves and he's horribly and terribly beaten. And one priest walks by and another priest walks by and he makes the hero of the story a, a Samaritan who exercises compassion. And according to the text, he took care. Same word. He takes care of a complete stranger, offers assistance, utilizes his own resources. The Samaritan took care of him. That's what the pastor's supposed to do. Take 
care. And the spiritual qualifications, look at verse 6 quickly. Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Paul forbids the ruling elder to be a novice or a new believer. And the reason why Paul cites this is for the overwhelming temptation to pride and therefore sin. And so Paul reminds us that it's dangerous. It's dangerous to prematurely thrust new believers into leadership roles. Satan occupied a role of honor and authority according to Isaiah chapter 14, 12, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11. And so it says, who fell into the condemnation of the devil. What does that mean? The condemnation of the devil, remember what condemnation is. It's the judicial pronouncement of guilt because you've committed a crime. And what's his crime? He elevates himself above God. He exercises pride. He is removed from the place of honor and authority that God had entrusted to him because of pride. And so that kind of fall can happen when you are ill-prepared. And so the judgment or the condemnation of Satan could mean receive the same sentence as Satan or follow his example in judgment. It may mean to follow Satan's plan in the sense of to ensnare people in pride, to embrace pride, because the idea seems to be that pride pollutes our mind and perverts our affections and creates a mechanism where judgment becomes really, really difficult. And so the immature can fall prey to the influences of people who are less than honorable and pride and conceit were the devil's downfall. And so he uses pride to trap other people. And then there are the community qualifications in verse 7. It says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil, or the mechanisms of the devil, or the schemes of the devil, or the trap of the devil. And so he's tying these things together. The idea being, again, that the ruling elder is going to be under constant attack and subject to ongoing demonic harassment. And for that reason, it's a really, really good idea for you to pray for me and to pray for the pastors. And so Paul notes that the overseer's reputation in the community could bring reproach on the gospel, could bring reproach on the church. Pastors don't have the right to incur bad debt. They, pastors can't make promises. Pastors aren't supposed to be the people who live their lives in such a way that people come to the conclusion where they say, I thought you were a Christian. I, excuse me. I thought you were a Christian. I thought Christians say what they mean and mean what they say. I thought Christians keep their word. I thought Christians pay their debts. That's what I thought Christians do. And Paul says, don't hurt the testimony of Christ. Don't hurt the testimony of the church. God doesn't require that the community agree with our moral or biblical positions. But it's going to be very, very difficult 
to make a spiritual impact on a community if that community doesn't respect you. So we're to be good friends in the community in which we live and good neighbors to the people who surround us. We have to conduct ourselves in such a way that our behavior doesn't provoke unbelief. Does your behavior help people think about Jesus in a good way or in a bad way? Are we offering bridges in our community to cross over or are we burning bridges so that people are less likely ever to come to the cross? So how important is it to you that your physician have proper training? Would you want to take your children or your grandchildren to a quack? How important is it to you that if you had to have brain repair or heart repair, how important is it to you that that person actually knows what they're doing? Let's even go even simpler. How important is it to you for someone to watch your children who won't hurt your children or abuse your children or take advantage of your children? Do you have minimum qualifications for the people who watch your kids? And I hate to make this always political, but are there minimum qualifications of integrity and decency for leadership? So quickly, what's Paul's checklist for the ruling elder? There's a long list and there's a short list. Let me just remind you of what we've already covered. The long list incorporates key principles, which I could have dealt with a lot more. There's 15 of them, by the way, and I didn't write them down by numbers, but let me just, again, remind you. Number one, blameless above reproach. That's the same thing. The husband of one wife, temperate. That means moderate, limits, not extreme, not excessive, self-controlled, respectable, able to teach, not a drunk, not violent, gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money free from harshness, manages their own homes and children with compassion, not a recent convert, not full of pride and conceited. By the way, in the original language, the conceit is an interesting word. Do you know what it means? It means wrapped in smoke. Isn't that interesting? Conceit is wrapped in smoke. The idea being, you know what? That person is all smoke and no substance. So, in smaller terms, character matters, verses 2 and 3. Conduct matters, verses 4 through 7. Creed matters. In verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. Creed meaning teach properly. Teach properly doctrine that represents the character of Christ and the gospel itself. And then finally, even though we didn't look at it in verse 10, but let these also be first tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. The idea of a tested pastor applies to all of the leaders, but the implication is commitment, character, 
conduct, creed, commitment. Is this person a fly-by-night person? As you go through all of those things, I wish I could say that each of these things become representative of me, but every time I look at that, I go below, 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 below. It is true that I'm not a drunk, though. The last beer I drank was in India in 1987, where I got amoebic poisoning, and they basically said, my brother, you are going to die unless you drink beer. I don't drink. I, I, I abstain from alcohol. Okay, you, you don't have to drink. You will die now. Okay, I'll have the beer. You know, remember what we talked about? There seems to be a great deal of controversy about women being the ruling elder. By going over this information, have you discovered that not all men are qualified to be the ruling elder as well? So who then is qualified for such a task? No wonder James says, don't be many teachers among you knowing that you're going to incur stricter judgment. John Stott says, Christian leadership appears to break down into five main ingredients. Clear vision. Hard work. Dogged perseverance. Humble service. Iron discipline. But each and every person who really desires the role of the pastor, they desire a wonderful work because they're given the greatest privilege in the whole wide world. And that's to tell people about Jesus, to encourage them to know Jesus and to love Jesus and to walk with Jesus. So, we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this and we see the state of leadership in the church as a whole, Lord, it's my desire, it's my deep, deep desire that these qualifications, the, the spiritual qualifications, the, the characteristics, Lord, would mark us. Lord, we know that each and every one of us is in a process of growth and maturation. Lord, we pray that as we are filled with the Spirit, that we would again cultivate the character of Christ in our lives and that our conduct would reflect that character and our beliefs would reflect both our conduct and our behavior. And Lord, we pray that we would make a commitment not to doing what's wrong, but to doing what's right. Not using our failures as an excuse to quit but as an opportunity to share our brokenness, our humility, our inability to embrace perfection, but a deep desire to want to be different, 
and a deep desire to be the kind of men and women who truly, genuinely represent your love. And so again, Father, we, I pray for each and every person here. I pray for the man and the woman who desires leadership, usefulness, to be used by you in such a marvelous way. And Lord, I pray that they would be both externally willing to stretch and that they would be internally motivated to live a life of purity and integrity in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.